Welcome to Highly Volatile, an unfiltered podcast for real-life professional traders, investors, and top executives. To be the best, you need your thoughts and perspectives challenged by the best. This podcast series features some of the most thought-provoking and disruptive minds in both business and investing. My name is Kevin Van Trump, and I'm joined each podcast by my good friend, legendary trader and angel investor, Andy Daniels. Together, we attempt to challenge the conventional and gain a better understanding of the disruptor. We search high and low for wealth hacks and exciting new investment opportunities. But at the same time, try to uncover hidden pitfalls or unforeseen changes coming our direction that might rock our worlds. We hope you're challenged by our unfiltered thoughts and conversations and enjoy our highly volatile podcast. And please remember, there's risk in trading futures and options. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources, foundations for you to buy or sell any commodity, any stock or any type of other investment. So make sure you use the podcast as an educational tool to broaden your horizons and maybe add a bit more perspective. Hey, this is Kevin Van Trump on with another edition of the Highly Volatile Podcast with my good friend Andy Daniels. We've had uh, been off for a couple weeks. Andy's been traveling out to uh, his uh, ranch out there in Idaho, and, and I've been hunkered down out here in Kansas City for the most part and trying to get past these coronavirus hiccups and stay out of some of the riots and demonstrations and, uh, you know, just watching this market, uh, stock market tick higher. Andy making new highs. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh I'm 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 lost. I, I I truly think that we're in uncharted territories that we're way overvalued relative to the fundamentals and all the economical economic backlash that hasn't even hit us yet. I guess you know fund stimulus money, uh, Fed money uh, cures all woes, but um, at some point I think we're still going to have to pay the piper. Kevin, you you made a good yeah, comment the other that. day in one of your wires. Uh, Talking about their old bears and their uh, their only old bears and young bulls, and I guess uh, I'm in the category of the old bear. <laughs> I think we're both in that camp. It's uh, I think as we get older, we find that it's hard to uh, I guess it's hard to recognize and understand some of the new things that are coming on and the new technology. And I guess I got a little bit of an enlightening uh, a couple weeks back from younger trader, of course, tell me, you know, well, with all the stimulus in play and, uh, you know, the easy money and the low interest rates and the low energy costs and now all this available labor, you know, it's really, uh, you add them all together and it, it equals a really big recipe for growth and you've got people wanting to be aggressive and not a lot of other places like you've said before and I think like our guest Joel who's going to be on today said uh, not a lot of other places to put money or put uh, assets to work so here we are pushing to what seems like uh, unbelievable highs here in the market I think Nasdaq was going to make uh, fresh all-time highs today so I mean just just crazy so how about the rice trade Andy what the heck what a home run right? oh boy it, you know it's been a hell of a run Kevin uh, I've been in it for quite a while probably Saw the better part of five, six dollars uh, in terms of uh, low to where we got up, um, move. But even in the last two days, it's moved another couple dollars higher. So, you know, it's it, now you're in the throes of get me outs and uh, open interest is starting to get on the, uh, you know, the shrinking side of the uh, liquidity pool. So, 
it's it's uh, interesting to watch it go up, but I think we're now starting to like the economy. We're we're starting to ex- to uh, overshoot our economic value because rough rice eventually has to be turned into milled rice, and milling margins don't exist at these uh, lofty levels we've experienced with a two dollar and fifty cent rally in the last two days, and probably more to come tomorrow. So. I don't know how to play it. Uh, it certainly is too thin and illiquid of a market to play at the moment, but there's going to be some great opportunities, I think, come next year, uh, you know, starting with the uh, November contract uh, as we are late and we lost acres again this year because of uh, it was too wet. So first and 10, do it again, a little repeat performance. How do you see things I, uh, in the corner bean market, Kevin? <clears throat> I laugh on the on the rice trade. I tell everyone, you know, I said I would have, you know, we went out there and we got, it was kind of like the coronavirus trade. We got short the stock market, uh, short some hedges in the stock market and long rice. And I said, hell, I would have had a, had a great year if I wouldn't have had all the short hedges on in the, in the stock. So, I, I mean, on that net, I was kissing my cousin most of the year, it seemed like. I, I, I haven't made, I know you guys. Hey, gentlemen. Great year. Now, hey, Joel, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. I'm just talking to my good friend, Andy Daniels, and. We were talking about some trades that we uh, had on uh, currently, uh, you know, with the rice market and some of the other uh, stock market things. Andy, you know Joel? Joel, I don't know you personally, but uh, I've been a big fan of yours for years. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you finally, and uh, I'm super excited. Good. So it sounds like you guys had a good day in the market today. <laughs> no, we're just, well, we, we're just you know, cheerful, had... but dim-witted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we had this epiphany. Uh, oh, so someone had passed it around. The you know old bears and young bulls, and we've we've think somehow we've we didn't ever want to believe we've moved into the old category, but uh, we think we have definitely we're on the back nine here for sure. We're probably on hole fifteen or sixteen. I'm thinking. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to work backwards. Exactly, I hear you. So where are you at right now? Are you in Florida or are you in New York? Or? No, I'm sitting in Florida. I've, I've been very lucky. I I have a home in Longboat Key, Florida, which is right by Sarasota, and okay. it's an island, uh, just about ten miles long. We haven't had a COVID case in nine weeks, and we only had a couple of them back in March. And that was because some guy from Sweden with the infection showed up and infected a couple of people. But uh, we we never stopped playing tennis here, which is my big thing. And um, the restaurants have been open, I guess, about three weeks. And I've been going to the dentist or the doctor for about four weeks. And so life here has been pretty normal. And uh, we have none of the uh, riots or any of that sort of stuff going on here. So I feel like I live on another planet when I turn on TV. Yeah, you know, Joel, I was uh, I, I was down in uh, Naples all winter, and I keep when every time I'd read your wires, I'd uh, I go, God, one of these days I need to meet this guy. And in fact, last um, summer I'm out in Driggs, Idaho, which is just the other side of Jackson, Wyoming, and I sent you an email because you mentioned you were going to be out here hiking in the Tetons. And uh, yes, I was. Anyway. Yeah, where, where all did you hike? Uh, we went up into the Tetons and hiked all through the Tetons and 
a little bit in Yellowstone and then hung out in Jackson Hole for two days. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a great place. Well, next time I, I love it out, there. Come, over the, uh, come, come over the mountain to the working man side of the valley and uh, <laughs> is a, it's a great little town. I'll tell, I'll tell you guys a funny story uh, about the Tetons. Um, I was there, I want to say, 36, 37 years ago. And at the time, I had a real thing for Angie Dickinson. Like, I was mad about Angie Dickinson. And in the Tetons, um, the Teton Hotel or whatever it is, there's sort of a green in front of that. The cottages are around this little green. And in the evening, about 5 o'clock, I was sitting on the porch of my little cottage. And my wife and daughter were inside. And straight ahead of me, the sun was setting. And across the green walks this wonderful-looking lady in a white silk outfit with the sun behind her. And it was Angie Dickinson. And what they did was they served sort of a buffet dinner. And I was on the buffet line and I turned to my left and there's Angie Dickinson saying hello to me. <laughs> You're starting to sound like it was going to be the, uh, the Chevy Chase uh, um, um, American vacation uh, <laughs> story about him. And who was it? Uh, no, my, my, my daughter... My daughter was happy to make fun of me, but I, I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. When are you going to head back to New York? Um, in about a week and a half, going back to my house okay. in the Hamptons. And oh, yeah. whenever I get back to Manhattan, I don't have any idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a tough uh, yeah. Oh. Um, understand yeah, what are you hearing things going on? So, it, it, what's that, my, my, Kevin? Yeah, I said, what are you hearing up there uh, through the man through Manhattan area? And everything? just same thing we're seeing on TV. Or? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. You know, the city, as you know, if you watch TV, was kind of locked down last night. Um, some areas, you know, were pretty trashed up. Um, I, where I live, which is the Upper West Side, apparently nothing happened, luckily. But, you know, it, it, the reality of Manhattan is de Blasio has destroyed the city. And he and Cuomo passed this bail reform law, which basically says if you commit a crime but you don't kill somebody, you get out of jail free uh, the same day. And so it, you may not have paid attention on the news, but the, the other night they arrested 700 looters, and the next day 700 looters were back on the street. And crime has gone up substantially in Manhattan, in the whole city, actually. Murders have gone up, and the city is a mess. It's just a total mess. And even Cuomo now is all over de Blasio publicly because he's really wrecked the city. And so a lot of people are talking about leaving permanently. And with virtual meetings, uh, whether it's on Zoom or Microsoft or whatever system people are using, and people have gotten used to it, I, I hear anecdotal stories 
from friends of mine who run companies that when their lease is up, they're not renewing. And what they'll do is they'll have people working virtually, which they are now, through the virus. And they'll have some place where they'll have a conference room and maybe one or two offices. And once a week, they'll get people together in their conference room for sort of a team meeting. But otherwise, they're going to carry on business virtually. And uh, so I would not want to own an a, uh, office building in Manhattan because I don't know what the future yeah. holds. Yeah, Andy and I were talking about that early on, Joe. We, we, I'm pretty, I'm fairly heavily invested in real estate, uh, mostly here in the Midwest and multi-use properties and buildings, some larger commercial buildings, and then some condos and, and residential multifamily, but. We, we had talked, you know, we, we've had a lot of our listeners and investors uh, who are diversified in real estate just, you know, become kind of just uncertain. We, we thought we were going to see some opportunities, Joel, in the state of Florida's, the California's, uh, where some of the hotter vacation properties were, where maybe some of these large Airbnb holders got overextended and, and Airbnb buckled on them and they couldn't make it, but I, I we're not, I'm not seeing that much break. Are you? No. Well, let me tell you what's, let me tell you what's actually happening because yeah. I think it'd be helpful. Um, there's no, there's no transaction market right this minute. There's no, there's no real bid offer that means anything. And they're so far apart. There's, there is no market to buy or sell right at the moment. So the banks have decided correctly, I think, that there's no sense foreclosing because who are you going to sell it to and get your money out? And so the, the banks have decided at least for the next 90 to 120 days to be accommodative, to either defer debt service, minimize debt service, or minimize covenants or do whatever they have to do to accommodate their borrowers because they really don't have a choice. And in the CMBS market, um, it's kind of the same thing because nobody really knows where we're going or what's going to happen. So while there is an enormous amount of money, tens of billions sitting on the sidelines, just like you guys, thinking, hey, this is going to be a great opportunity, there's really not an opportunity yet because people are looking at the situation and they're saying, I don't really know whether I should pay a million dollars, $2 million, $500,000. I have no idea. And especially in the hotel business, which is, as you know, getting destroyed by this. Um, I was on a conference call last night with a bunch of lawyers who specialize in hospitality and that is really a mess because a lot of the brands may decide, may, nobody knows yet, to get out of managing properties that they brand because there's a lot of potential liability of who puts up the working capital to go back in business, who puts up the money to renovate the property, who did the right now, if you are a manager, you employ the staff. So there's a question about when you laid off the whole staff and closed the hotel, did you give them what's called a Warren notice, which is a 60 day notice 
or do you have liability for not having done that? Who's going to pay the accrued vacation for all this time that there was no business? There's just a whole series of potential liabilities. And then, of course, you got the trial lawyers out there who love to sue hotels for any reason. So there's a lot of risk in doing hotel deals going forward. And the lawyers think there's going to be an entire change in how management contracts are structured and how the whole relationship is structured. And because of all that, there are no transactions happening. And it's unclear when they will. And for the big box conference hotels, nobody has any idea when big conferences are going to start up again. It may be first quarter of 2021. It may be later before there's any volume of the conferences. Because if you're a major corporation, at least right now, you're not going to take the liability risk of sending any of your staff to a big conference and taking a risk they're going to come home with the virus and sue you. And so everybody's sort of on hold. And so the big conference hotels are mostly closed and nobody knows when they're going to reopen. Now, there is a big hotel conference around the 1st of October that a good friend of mine runs. He's telling me that 40% of the hotel people say they're going to show up, 25% say maybe, and the other 35% say no way. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know whether to put the conference on or not put the conference on or what to do. And so because I spent years in the hotel financing business. Um, when the crash happened in 08, um, I had predicted that. And the reason I knew there was going to be a disaster was I was very involved in the CMBS and capital markets in 07. And in May of 07, a group of us very senior people in the business had lunch one day. And we all agreed that the crash was going to happen. And I still remember this like it was yesterday. On May 9th, I was coming home from that meeting in Chicago, and I called my broker from the taxi when I landed at LaGuardia, and I said, just sell everything. Get out right now. He thought I was out of my mind, but I got out of the stock market in May of 07. Because a bunch of us in Wall Street knew exactly what was going on. And when I went to big hotel conference that happens in January, um, this was in January 08, I told people it's going to crash and you better get out of the business now. And people yelled at me and told me I was stupid. And so we all know what happened. And at the time I said, you know, this is going to happen again someday for some reason. And I used to talk about the black swan events, which of course the, the virus was the ultimate black swan event. And this was it. And to me, Investing in hotels versus investing in the stock market, investing in multifamily uh, or some other kinds of real estate doesn't make any sense because the risk return doesn't make any sense to me. Now, if you're in multifamily, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you're in self-storage in the right place, it makes a lot of sense. Maybe in the Midwest, office makes good sense. I don't really know. 
It's different from well, in Joe, Manhattan. Joel, it kind of feels like, you know, until we, you know, push uh, eight billion people's with a uh, with a with a vaccine, or at least those in this country, you're going to have a hard time, as you said, getting back to normalcy. But you know, life after you, you COVID, know, I, uh, I don't really I don't really know if that's true. Um, I, I've got two reasons to say that. First of all, I'm not questioning anything about the vaccine because. I don't know. I don't understand any of that stuff other than you go to the doctor and they give you a shot. But right now, only 50% of the people get a flu shot and 60 some odd thousand people die every year from the flu. So you got to sort of ask yourself, what is everybody going to go get a vaccine shot? And how long is it going to take to inoculate 320 million people? And so I don't think everybody's going to get vaccinated. And I'm not sure it really matters because I just look, when I drive around Sarasota in the last week or so, and I was out today, the shopping centers, and they're they're not malls here, they're more like power centers. The parking lots are full. People are shopping. They're going about like it's normal. The restaurants here on Longboat Key are open. People are going to dinner. I see, I was in the restaurant at my club the other night picking up some dinner. And I was looking around, and every table had two couples. And they were sitting, you know, close to each other. And these people are all over 70 years old. And they're acting like nothing ever happened. My own personal view is... We're going to get to a point, maybe fairly soon, based on what I look at in Sarasota, where people are going to go, you know what? I don't really care about the vaccine. I'm tired of worrying about this, and I'm going about my life. Now, that may be an overly optimistic view because I know, for example, my wife is still very worried. I'm not. Um, But I know a lot of my buddies... um, are like, okay, well, I'll sort of keep my distance a little, but otherwise, you know, I'm not going to worry about this. And most of my buddies are old guys. Yeah, right. We need to protect the uh, vulnerable and uh, get on with uh, the economy and, and the world as we know it because the cure is worse than the uh, the problem itself. But when you look I at that, Andy, post- I saw an, Andy, I saw an interesting study they released today that said, Along the lines of what Joel said, <laughs> even if they had the you know, you know, today, that only forty-five percent of the people. Yeah, you there? Could you hear me, Joel? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I said there was a study released today that said even if they had a vaccine out today, and they pulled thousands and thousands in the study, only forty-five percent of the people said they'd take it. That's, yeah, that's pretty interesting. You know, so that's kind of how it works. Know. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe they won't. Yeah. But but when you, you know if if you, if you look at the numbers, the people that move out of the uh, out of the big cities, and you mentioned New York, and uh, I'm originally from Chicago, and I, I see a lot of that same sentiment there. Once we get beyond this COVID and everything else, what do you see? You know, with we've learned a lot about telecommunicating, about using Zoom and all these other uh, um, technologies to to work remotely and. And so what, what do you see in the residential and the commercial real estate markets and, you know, in the urban areas? I mean, 
you know, there's there's a, a trend to leave big cities, and and uh, you know how, how much you know commercial real estate space are we going to need uh, per square footage, uh, you know, for large companies, and just kind of what is your thought about this post-COVID world and you know, there are two schools out there around, you know, the future of space requirements for offices as well as residential and, and certainly mall activity. What are your thoughts on that, Joe? Well, I, I think you got to be careful. You know, New York is New York. And as I said earlier, de Blasio's destroyed it, and people just want to get out. You know, the taxes are high, crime is up again, and, and the living situation in New York, is headed in all the wrong directions till we get rid of de Blasio. Um, and then you have places like Austin or Denver, which are booming with young people and high tech, Pittsburgh, Raleigh, they're all really good cities. So I think you have to distinguish between cities like San Francisco, where they seem to like homeless people living in the street, and New York, where the homeless problem is getting worse and all these other problems exist, and cities like Denver, Austin, Raleigh, Pittsburgh, Boise, um, where I think they'll do just fine because people want to get out of this, the first cities I mentioned and go have a much lower cost of living and a very nice lifestyle and not put up with all the big city urban garbage uh, that we have to put up with right now. So I, I think it really depends, as I said. That as far as retail, um, it's toast. I think one of, one of the outcomes of the virus is we've now supposedly passed 20% of people shop online as a result of the virus. And I'm not an expert in retail, but people who are say that was kind of the magic threshold inflection point. And as more and more people get very comfortable shopping online, and as we have more and more young people becoming consumers as they get a little older, um, there's less and less reason to go to a mall and to go physically shopping. I mean, I, there's some company, I don't remember what it's called, advertises on TV where you put your phone down, lean it against the wall and you stand in front of it and turn around and in a minute or two minutes it measures you and you can order jeans or a shirt perfectly sized. Now, I, I don't know if that really works. I'm assuming there's some validity to it, but if that really works, think about that. I can stand in my living room and order clothes and have them tailored and have them shipped to me. So there's all sorts of things like that happening. And as more young people become more of the consumers and more of us old guys become less consumers, I think the trend is going to be away from physical shopping and more and more toward online shopping. And so if I owned a mall today, I'd be really nervous. If I owned a little strip center with a supermarket and a couple of, you know, a dry cleaner and liquor store and the, the normal sort of things, they'll probably be fine. Um, I don't know. Where I live in Manhattan, 
you walk down the street, this was before the virus and before the riots, there was empty stores on every street. And, and that, I'm talking about January, February, when the economy was booming. And it was noticeable how many empty stores there were. Now, after the riots and the virus, I'm told it's really bad. So for a city like New York, if you own retail space, you're probably in a lot of trouble. Or Chicago, or I don't know about Boston. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. Well, so you got the restaurants that are in trouble. You're going to see half of those go out of business. Uh, you're gonna, you got uh, exactly. the malls you're talking about are uh, are screwed. You got uh, office space where people are going to be working from home more remotely, and you won't need as much space to uh, accomplish what you're doing. You probably have changed corporate travel forever with uh, not just the issues of of of, of uh, safety and, and and being at conferences, and you'll still do those, surely. But you, you're really starting to see that creep into the bottom line and, and the economic cost of that as we get into a more you know cost sensitive uh, environment is going to also see a price to pay so what happens to all this space I mean how do you retool it well you don't I mean what do you do with a big office building that's got uh, empty floors I don't you know. know there's no alternative use at least in a mall you you might have an Amazon distribution center where there used to be a Macy's uh, or there might be a gym or there might be some sort of health center. But, you know, in a large size mall, how much of that stuff can you do, right? Um, In a power center, you could maybe find some alternative uses. So I don't know what to do with a big office building as this trend goes on, but just to your point, which is actually on target, um, I've read a number of CEOs say, you know what, after doing this for two and a half months, what we figured out is productivity is up 30 or 40% because people are not wasting their time sitting in their car or on a train commuting. And we're not spending money on an office for them. And we're not flying to California or wherever and wasting, you know, half a day flying and being tired when we get there and paying 2000 bucks to fly plus a hotel room for two nights or three nights or whatever. So I can do it in a Zoom call and it works just fine because now everybody is used to it. And so I just saved thousands of dollars. And I did it in 45 minutes. And so um, people are waking up to that and they're realizing they don't need to physically be in the same room for every single meeting. There's a lot of things they can do without doing that. So I'll give you a good example. Um, I have a small lawsuit against somebody going on right this minute. I've never met my lawyer, only on the phone, because I had to hire a local lawyer to take care of this little thing. And I got to thinking about that and thinking, boy, just think about that. And um, I sold my boat, I don't know, two weeks ago or something. There was no 
they came and they physically picked up the boat, and that was the last I ever saw of anybody. Everything was done online, including my signature on all the documents, on the buyer's signature. Nobody ever saw each other. So well, you know, just take my little anecdotes. Has, yeah. But look at the impact. I mean, look at the impact jobs had on, on communication between people. You have millennials sitting at the same dinner table texting each other. Now we're going to get to exactly. the point where we, the, the human interaction and, and, and the impact that has on, on, our, on our society going forward, I mean, that's a, that's a conversation for another time. But, boy, there's a lot of consequences and, and uh, things that are going to change dramatically as a result of all that. Yeah, and I'm not sure any of it's good. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I've watched exactly what you just said. I, I've been in a restaurant where four young people are sitting around a table not talking to each other, texting. Now, whether they're texting each other across the table or texting their friends, <clears throat> I don't know, but there was no human interaction, no socialization, and I think that's a big problem. Huge. But yeah, there's nothing we can that. do about it. I don't think there's anything we can do about it. I, I think it's a bad thing because, no, you know, we, we, we need social contact. That's what humans are about. And so exactly. there, there are going to be consequences of which I can't really know. I'm not a social, person, a social scientist uh, or psychologist. I just know that's not good that, you know, I, I know when you do a negotiation for, on a deal, it's good to physically sit across the table from a guy and watch his eyes and watch his body language. And it's a little harder to do on Zoom. Hard to play poker uh, online. Although they're doing that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. You know, Joe, so I... I I think we're in a point in time, frankly, because of all that's gone on, where the world is really changing, um, whether for better or worse, I don't know. But technology is really changing everything. And then you add on um, China trying to dominate the world, the EU really coming apart, uh, in many ways, and, and maybe the EU won't even exist in five years because they can't seem to get anything together and their banking system is still weak and the virus really wrecked a whole bunch more companies in Italy and Spain and Greece. So I don't know what's going to happen to the EU, but um, I wouldn't put any money in the EU today for anything. I think it's a disaster in, in happening in slow motion. And China is going to be, in my opinion, a very, very dangerous player in the world. Because if you look at what the Chinese are saying and doing, I mean, it's, it's to me, I don't think there's any question. The virus was an accident. But once they realized what it was, I honestly believe they intentionally had people get on planes or they people were traveling anyway, but they didn't stop people from traveling around the world and spreading the virus because I really do believe they figured out if we're going to be in serious trouble, 
we need to let the rest of the world get in serious trouble. And they really let it happen. And so if they would do that, if they would do that, they'll do anything. And I've been to China and trying to do business there. And good luck. (laughs) You can't. Well, they don't give a damn about a million people. That's... That's not a big deal to them. A few million people—they're—they're they're long ball players, and you know they—they they have the—they don't have the uh, accountability of uh, elections. But you know, th- th- in this country, there's—I'm surprised there's not more of a backlash, not more anger towards China, both in this country and and for the rest of the world, frankly. But you know, somewhere on the line, we have uh, we, we we have you know um, uh, national services that we need to be able to protect. We can't have all our pharmaceuticals being made over there. And, you know, this whole pandemic is really, really just, it's it's widening this wealth gap to un, unmeasurable levels and will in the future with, you know, the, the biggest losses coming from the low-income people and the service industries you, you mentioned before, restaurants as well. And, you know, one of the bright spots, at least some people are talking about, and I had a question from one of our millennials, you know, is there any hope that we, you know, decouple the uh, supply chain with China, and, and does that translate back to more American-made manufacturing jobs in the future uh, to help, you know? Oh, I think so. I, I think absolutely. I, I don't think there's any question. As long as Trump stays in office, I think there's no question that the, a lot of things are coming back. I have friends who had um, production operations over in China. They're all leaving. Um, because it started with the tariffs, but then they realized, well, there could be other tariffs or there could be other issues or there could be a war or who knows what, and they're getting out and they're moving the supply chains. And I think any intelligent businessman who doesn't understand how much risk there is to have your supply chain dependent on China is an idiot. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they lie about everything. They really want to dominate the world. And, and what really worries me a lot is, and I, I was in the Navy and I sailed the South China Sea a lot when I was in the Navy, so I'm kind of familiar with it. And you know what's going on in the South China Sea. They have basically taken it over. Even though they said they wouldn't, they did militarize it. They are using their belt and road to buy off a whole lot of countries and the EU amazingly has never learned from World War II and refuses to back Trump on his uh, issues about the virus which devastated Europe and his issues about everything else with China stealing intellectual property because they're so in such bad shape China has a lot of money in Europe, and so the Chinese said, you better not give me trouble. So the EU is refusing to really back Trump. And in the meantime, the Chinese military are practicing amphibious landings on some island uh, somewhere, I recently read. And if Trump's not president, my bet is they invade Taiwan. And if Biden's president, nothing happens. And then we're in really bad trouble. So we're dealing with Chamberlain at the helm in Europe now, and we need uh, uh, Churchill, and we don't have any, uh, we're kind of uh, on an island to ourselves. 
which kind of brings up an That's exactly question. right. What, what do you see? You know, the 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 you know, with the potential of uh, structural damage to you know small to medium sized businesses, unemployment, consumer confidence, spending, all these things. You know, with all the stimulus pumped in, what does the world look like to you economically in 2021 if the Republicans win and in 2021 if the Democrats win? Well, look at the stock market today. The Mm S&P just closed at about 3120. I think the market was up 550 or somewhere around there today. We just have had a historic record of the 50-day rise in the market. Never been like this before. And if I take my anecdotes of what I mentioned earlier around here in Sarasota of people just saying, to hell with it, I'm going shopping or I'm going to the doctor or I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. I think putting aside the riots for the moment, um, people are going to go back to living life And if you look at the savings rate over the last couple of months, it's 33% or something like that. And people were getting, I mean, it's unheard of numbers, but they had no place to spend it. Gas prices are near record lows. Interest rates are at record lows. People are refinancing their mortgages and getting 3.1% mortgages in exchange for their 6% mortgage. That's a huge amount of money for most people. They just got a check for 1200 bucks plus their wife got 1200 bucks plus their kids each got 500 bucks and a lot of people on unemployment got an extra 600 bucks and so my sense is and i think this is proving true a lot of you hear all this stuff on tv about oh the you know, poor sally she is struggling and blah 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 mm-hmm. i think it's a lot of Yes, frankly, a lot of people have a lot of money. When I say a lot, I mean, given their situation, whatever it may be, they've got extra money sitting around that they haven't spent. They haven't run up their credit card. Maybe they've paid it down and their mortgage payment is now lower. Their gasoline price is now lower. And so they've got money to spend and they've been sitting home for two and a half months doing nothing. And I think they're going to get out and start spending. And my my sense, and this is pure gut, is that um, things are going to get a lot better a lot faster. I I had doubt about that, and I still do. But my gut says this may be a better recovery than a lot of people thought, and the stock market seems to be saying that same thing. And so if Trump gets reelected, I think, Q4 and 2021 are going to be very good. If Biden gets reelected, I'm selling every stock I own and going all cash, if that answers your question. <laughs> well, you, you've been right as rain. I mean, the last, you know, for the last couple of months, I, I read you just to keep myself steady. Um, and, and you haven't deviated at all in your written words in terms of, uh, you know, that you're going to be happy you owned it at the end of May if you don't own it now. Those were comments back in March and and so on and so forth. So kudos to you. Um, but, you know, how does I mean, Trump... I mean, just, just, listen to what, just listen to what Biden says. I mean, raise taxes, more regulation, go back to... We, 
We don't think China is competitive. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff the guy says. And and how does Trump get reelected? Because the economy comes back better than people expected. And the riots, I, I believe, starting with last night are going to be tapped down. And he took a firm stand. And despite what you hear in the press, I think his walking over to the church sent a big message of, look, look at me. I'm not afraid of these people. I took control. And this is what needs to happen. And that was what he was really doing was walking over to that church. And I think there's a lot of people who are saying, you know what, I'm tired of all this virus and riots and giveaway entitlement programs and budget deficits, Nancy Pelosi, and I'm voting for Trump. That's what I believe is going to happen. And I think there's a lot of black people after Biden's stupid comment you know, if you, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. I think there's a lot of black people who are somewhat successful who are going to say, screw you, Joe. <laughs> Plus, I also believe Joe can't string two sentences together without bumbling. And when they get him out on in public and when he goes and debates Trump, it's going to be unbelievable. Joe's going to look like an idiot. And he's going to pick, who knows, whether it's Kamala Harris or whoever as his VP. And you're going to hear very left-wing policies. And I think a lot of people are going to say, I'm not having this. I'm going back to Trump making the economy very good. And I, I really believe that's where people are going to come out. And as we know, polls don't mean anything especially now, right now. So I may be wrong, but that's what I think. Well, I mean, you know, he's he's fighting an uphill battle. He's got 100% of the media against him, and he's got uh, George Soros and uh, all his uh, minions, you know, fueling fires and putting uh, uh, pallets of bricks all around the country to uh, incite more uh, civil unrest. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough road to hoe, um, but... Uh, he got us here, and yeah, yeah but you I know, if, if he if he overcomes the riots, and if he gets the economy back on track by October, I believe he's actually going to look like a real leader, and people are going to say, you know what, he he dealt with it successfully, and he took on China, and I think China is going to be a big issue. I, I saw a poll recently where. 65% of the public believes China is a real problem. And I think they're going to play that up big. And, I mean, it's obvious to most people China is a big problem. And so I think he's actually, if things go much better by October, then he wins. If they don't, you know, if the virus comes back, if the economy doesn't come back, he loses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're we're looking at all this artificially low global interest rates and you know negative interest rates in different parts of the country, and you know there's certain uh, central banks out there that fear deflation more than they do inflation. You know, what is your view yes. on when all this excessive liquidity 
all these excessive liquidity stats start to show up in inflation data, and will it be asset or consumer-based inflation? And, and how do they end up controlling it in the end? And God forbid we have negative interest rates in this country, and as many are forecasting, and what does that mean to the average American uh, in terms of an impact on their life? Well, first of all, I think the Fed has done a spectacularly good job. Um, they saved us this time around, frankly. I mean, what was going on in Wall Street, in the bond markets, and in the uh, repo markets, et cetera, commercial paper, was a complete potential collapse, and the Fed stepped in, and they bought paper, and they flooded the market with liquidity, and they saved us. There's no question. The problem was it cost trillions to do that, and that same trillions, there's good and bad to it. The trillions are what's driving the potential recovery of the economy because you have three trillion from the CARES Act, you have another several trillion from the Fed pumping it into banks and into the bond market. And all that money is going somewhere. And right now it's going into the stock market and it's going into housing. I, I was, Just before we got on the phone, I was listening to some numbers that the housing market is booming right now. And the housing market's a big, important part of GDP because it drives, you know, buying furniture and buying other things and all the things that go with buying a house. And at current interest rates, the housing market is going to be doing just fine. And if people are moving out of big cities, they're going to be buying houses. And millennials are coming of age where they're going to be buying houses because they're going to be having kids. And so, you know, there is a long-term problem with all that money floating around, that's going to create exactly the problem you're talking about, which is inflation and, and deficits. And it's going to be a big problem. But for the moment, they didn't have a choice. And the Fed has done it right. The ECB has been doing it, but the German Supreme Court ruled that what the ECB is doing is illegal under German law. Now, it's unclear what that really means, but it's a complication for the EU, another problem the EU has. So I would say asset prices, mainly the stock market, will be inflated because as many of my friends who are active investors say, where else am I going to put my money except the U.S. stock market? You can't buy, the, buy bonds because rates are going to move up and you're going to lose money, and some bonds are going to are already tanked. You can't invest in emerging markets because they're a total disaster, and a number of them have dollar-based bond issues. You, you don't want to invest in China, and you don't want to invest in the EU. And you guys invest estate. in commodities. Sorry? Or real estate. I mean, commercial and otherwise. Well... That, I mean, I mean the, for guys know, like me, alternative uh, asset for for for, but right. for 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 your you know mom and pop investors, you know it was a you know forty percent bond portfolio and uh, maybe ten twenty percent in alternatives and that included real estate investment REIT type activity. But uh, 
you know, you, you've closed down the bond market. You're closing down those REIT markets in some regards. And uh, all the other things you mentioned, um, it, it really does leave well, and, very limited places to go. Exactly, which is why the stock market's going up. Um, I mean, where else are you going to put your money? I would never do what you guys do, invest in commodities, because I don't understand the first thing about what you guys do. Nothing. So I don't invest in that. And I have um, looked at the data over years, and I've looked at my own portfolio over years. I've, I've always only invested in large cap U.S. companies. And over the years, I've averaged around, well, I haven't looked in the last couple of months, but 11%, 12% annualized return. And I don't trade. I just buy stuff that I think is a good, solid, balance sheet, well-managed, good-name company, and I own it. Now, I may get out. It's like I got out of Macy's at some point and because I thought it was going to tank, which it did. Um, and so once in a while, I'll do something like that. Um, but mostly, I just buy for the long term a good, solid U.S. company, and they make good money. And if you look at the long-term returns, if you buy good U.S. companies, you should average somewhere around 9% average annual return. Now, some years will be worse, some years will be better, obviously, but over time, it's around 9%, whereas the bond market over time is around 4 or 5%, and if what I think is going to happen, which is we're going to have low interest rates for the next two or three years, your average return is going to be nothing. In fact, you'll lose money because rates will start going up from where they are now because I don't think we're ever going to negative interest rates. And so you probably lose money. And I have never, ever believed in the 60-40 stocks, bonds kind of ratio because I think you're leaving a lot of money on the table. And, and you can lose money in the bond market. We went through a period of about 30 years where we had very good money being made in the bond market, but that's over. When you're at 1% or half a percent rates, there's only one way rates can go, and that's up. And when rates go up, bond prices go down. That's a fact. And this 60-40 I mean, I, you know, I, I know a bunch of guys who manage money in Wall Street. You know, it's very simple from a liability standpoint to say, well, I'm going to put your money in 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and we'll do a ladder on the bonds, and over time, you know, you'll get your money back. It's hard to get sued for doing that. If I put your money 100% in stocks and you have a year like 2018 where the market didn't do well, or 2008, where it tanked by 37% or whatever, you can get sued. And so 60-40 is like a magic thing, even though there's no proof, in my opinion, that that's the best approach. And so I have tried different wealth managers to work with, and I have never, ever let a wealth manager have discretion and now I do my, I just have my money at, in my own accounts at Schwab and I make my own decisions and I'm doing better. Hey, Joel, this is Kevin. You, uh, you seeing any opportunities in real estate? I, I, I invest in real estate still and, and buy and, you know, mostly buy and hold longer term to build a portfolio for, you know, 
legacy type plays and things of that nature. So, have you seen right. any opportunities or places you'd try and pick some things up, or what do you see? Well, I, I absolutely do think there's opportunities in real estate now because, look, some some owners are in trouble, and even in multifamily, there's a number of foreclosures already happening in multifamily. So, you know, people who own B and C multifamily, they're probably having some problems collecting rent, and there's probably opportunities, I'm guessing, around the Midwest to buy maybe B quality properties at discounts now because the owners can't make it and they're struggling because of failures of rent collections. And there may be some strip centers with a a good solid um, CVS or Walgreens or supermarket that you could buy at a discount today and hold it um, and it'll do fine. Um, in the right location, self-storage is fine. Um, so I'm not discounting real estate by any means. Um, but in fact, it's a good long-term investment. You know, you hold it long enough, you can, if it's a good, a good property in a good location, same story as always, location, 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 you'll do yeah. fine and you'll build wealth for legacy purposes. Yeah, it seems like time has always bailed me out of uh, what, what I look back as maybe a stupid purchase. I could have got it a little cheaper, but over time, it seems like it's always bailed me out to pretty well, as long as my location was right, like you're saying. It's, it's definitely, we've learned that uh, lesson, uh, location's imperative. And, and I think it's going to be even more so as we see this movement of these millennials, and uh, like we're saying, they're going to be sitting home and doing all these things online, they are going to look to social gather in places. And if you can get those locations right in some of these, seems like the artsy areas uh, we've had some good luck with, you know, you know, and just where we've seen some of the more gay and lesbian communities move to and, and get more artsy in those areas have really transitioned some things. And we've made some really good buys and I've had some longer term holds. And I, I don't know. I just, it's interesting, like I said. No, I mean, I mean, yeah. You know, who would have thought Boise, Idaho, was going to be a great market? But values in Boise, Idaho, are way up because young people love it there. Yeah. Reno, like Nevada, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. Austin, I said like Reno, said, Nevada. Austin, a lot of these other guys. Yeah. What would you, if you had to pick your three or five, three to five best asset classes, you know, going forward, uh, you know, post-COVID, um, where where you see opportunities, what would they be? Just generally speaking, I, I would be as I am right now, um, with most of my money in the big high-tech companies in the stock market. And I think the stock mm-hmm. market's the best place to be at the moment. Um, I think, you know, the right location, multifamily, uh, or maybe developing condos in a place like Boise or Austin, maybe Austin, not anymore, I don't know, Denver. I, I almost owned some stuff in Denver. I, I really like that market. Um, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so, I, you know, I would have no problem owning real estate, multifamily, or maybe a strip center, uh, small office building uh, in some of those kind of towns. 
Um, I think those would be good investments long term. And um, after that, I'm not so sure. Fair enough. <clears throat> Fair enough. You know, I know you're a, a big. Uh, uh, in every one of your uh, letters, you, you always uh, save some space to talk about education. Um, you know, and you have a big passion about you know, how the decay of the university systems have been hijacked by the left. And you know, how do you see all that going forward? I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. When I graduate, I went to Tulane University and graduated a generation ago, and I think I was paying seventy eight hundred bucks a year for a room and board and and, and tuition. One generation later, my son virtually just graduated a couple weeks ago, and it was up to about sixty-eight thousand bucks a year. And so, you know, in one generation, we go up ninefold in, in the cost of education. When I graduated, I went to work for a company called Continental Grain as a soybean merchandiser in, in a soybean merchant uh, processing plant, making seventeen five a year. And my nephew went and had virtually the same job one generation later, uh, making forty-eight thousand a year. So. Same, same university goes up ninefold. Same, same job goes up twofold, two and a half. At the same time, we've added, you know, one and a half trillion dollars of student debt, and uh, we're getting less than what we paid for back then. So, you know, what are your thoughts? Does this learning to do things electronically impact the future of universities? Because we can't add do this another generation. The, the, the economics just don't pencil. So how, how do you well, see you're, all that? You're point? 100% right. Well, let me, let me just tell you, I got involved, uh, must be a year and a half ago, that there's a professor at Penn Law School named Amy Wax. And mm-hmm. uh, I got friendly with a guy named Paul Levy, who's a Wall Street private equity guy. And he was chairman of the board of Penn Law School. And Amy Wax was a highly regarded, uh, award-winning professor for 20 years at Penn Law and she gave an interview, this goes back about a year and a half, to the Philadelphia Enquirer, off campus, unrelated to the campus, unrelated to Penn Law. Uh, in other words, it wasn't part of the Penn Law uh, thing. And what she said was, was her opinion, not her opinion, it was a fact, that the kids, the black kids who got into Penn Law as diversity students as opposed to because they had high scores, uh, never made it out of the bottom half of the class. And they'd have been better off going to a different school, getting their law degree at Rutgers or someplace like that. And she was being factual. Well, she got um, demoted. They took her classes away. They excoriated her, um, and the faculty at the law school stopped talking to her. Now, I got to know Amy pretty well. She's a very smart lady, and she believes that this whole diversity thing is, and I have come to believe this, is a disaster for the black kids because they're getting accepted into schools that they're not prepared for, and they can't really cope, and so they get frustrated. They drop out. They get mediocre grades, and there's a lot of grade inflation because nobody wants to fail a black kid in college. They end up dropping out, and they get their lives kind of screwed up, whereas if they went to 
a black college or a middle-level college instead of Harvard or Penn or Yale, they might do extremely well and have a very successful life. And then you get the issue of freedom of speech. Now, there's a woman in our group who had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today named Heather McDonald. Heather has written some books on the subject. She's a, one of these think tanks, um, Manhattan Institute. And I've gotten to know Heather pretty well. And she's like Amy. She just tells it like it is. And she writes books and articles like she did today about the real problem is a cultural problem in the black community that the blacks need to resolve for themselves. We can't just throw money at them and think it's going to make any difference because it hasn't. We spent trillions of dollars in all these poverty programs and it's made no difference. And so what's going on on campus is you have all these campuses hiring a dean of diversity, a dean of sexual harassment, a dean of inclusion, a dean of whatever, and they pay them 300 grand each. And each one, of course, needs a staff. So they have a staff, and the staff needs something to do, so they write rules and regulations. And they have orientation the first week where they teach the kids, if you dare say anything that is deemed offensive, you could be suspended, you could have problems. And so the kids go to class, and they're afraid to speak up. And so there's no freedom of speech. So Heather went to give a speech. She was invited to give a talk at Claremont College in California a year ago. And they ended up having to have armed police escort her to safety off the college campus. Now, when we went to college, we were taught you're supposed to hear all kinds of views and, and learn how to decide things for yourself and how to think. Today, the kids are not taught to think. They're, they're taught ideology, which is why you see these massive protests. If you look at who it is, it's college-age kids for the most part, and that's what they're taught on campus, that everybody's a victim, they're a victim, and guys like us are white oppressors, male oppressors. And it's a really bad situation, and all this money that's going to pay for all these useless deans, the colleges figure, well, the kid can just get a student loan, and it's not our problem. And so college is like selling any other product. A Harvard education is worth, I don't know what they charge, they 70 grand or 80 grand, whatever. It's a market price because people will pay it because they want that piece of paper that says I graduated from Harvard, which is a ticket to getting hired at a better job, they think. And that's the game right now. But until they do what Trump has talked about, which is to make the colleges on the hook for part of the student loan, and until they get rid of all these deans of uselessness, it's never going to be better. And what, what I have become part of is this group, which I sometimes refer to, it's a loose group of us, probably 15 people, like the people I've described, some hedge fund managers, and there's three professors, 
two authors. It, uh, it's an interesting mixed group. And we're all determined uh, to try to do something about freedom of speech on campus because without freedom of speech, where are we? And that's the problem you see in the press today because these young people graduate from journalism school with this ideology and they become the reporters. And that's why you see the bias in the press. That's kind of what they were taught. And so I think we have really, really serious problems in universities today. And it's impacting our political system and it's impacting freedom of speech and it's impacting the press, and it's a really bad problem. So is online going to grow? Online education? Why the I don't thing? think so, so because, you, you know, the, well, I, look, I think there's a good chance that poorer kids and lower-income kids may get a better education because they're going to go online for a lot less money. But as you and I remember, being on campus is a social event as well as learning. And part of the learning is the socialization and the networking. And nobody goes yeah, to Harvard Business School but to Joel, take that's, classes. That's they go to Harvard. Yeah, but that's what we just got done talking about when, in, in terms of uh, you know iPhones and how that's de socialized people and now you know workplace environments are going to be more um, remote and uh, you know it just kind of follows in line with with how other aspects of society are changing and I, right. I just wonder if that and might so be part I, of the, the future I, who knows <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I don't honestly know right, but. I, I honestly don't know and I think it's kind of scary um, all I know is I'm, I often, my wife and I often talk about, you know, how out of it we are. <laughs> that we're just not part of what goes on today because we don't even understand how to use some of these devices. And, you know, you ever try to figure out all those buttons in your car? <laughs> exactly. You need, need a manual to do that. Right. Yep. So I, I don't I don't know the answer. I, I know that I'm very worried about what's going on on campus. And I think that, you know, this overpricing is uh, a huge problem. And we're getting close to the point where student debt is going to they're going to have to do something. I don't know what it is. They're going to have to forgive some of this debt and you and I are going to pay for it somehow, like we pay for most everything else. Um, but, you know, we can't ruin kids' lives by saddling them with this debt so that they can have all these useless deans on campus and fancy buildings and other stuff that they pay for. <coughs> you know, I think you got it. To pay. <clears throat> Go ahead, Kev. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think this stems a lot of it, and I give just my two cents to the listeners that, you know, as our colleges become more crowded, uh, they become more diversified because you're, you're sucking in a lot larger percentage of the population. I came from our family. We didn't have any money. My wife's family, we didn't have any money. We lived in a small rural town. 
uh, neither of our parents uh, attended or finished and got a college degree. My dad was in Vietnam, my grandfather in World War II, same on the opposite side of my wife's side. As we see more and more of these kids go to college, my, both of my kids went to the University of Arkansas. My daughter's graduating a degree with our uh, architect. Andy's son went to Wharton, uh, went to Penn, graduated from Penn, and the other one down to Tulane. We just didn't come from that kind of money. But as you see more and more kids come to these colleges, you're getting more and more, you know, poor families and, and poor kids into the schools. And my son said the exact same thing that you're saying. They brought on at the University of Arkansas someone to oversee the fraternity, someone to oversee what they say. They couldn't wear basketball jerseys around the campus. They couldn't wear anything that may inflame or be derogatory um, racially or a slant, uh, you know, towards lower income. And, I, and like I said, I don't know how we change that and how that goes. And I look at this current dilemma with the with the riots and the police and. And, and I will tell you this, and, and you guys will have it. I suspect you may have a different take on this. I think it's a power thing with the police. The police, there has to be some reform within the police. With, we came from no money, and I'm letting you know. I promise you this. The police treated myself and my friends much differently when I was out with them when I had no money than when I got money and when I joined a country club. And I'm letting you know, they talk to people at the high-rent homes or the high-rent country clubs if they're on patrol there much differently than they speak to people in the hood. And it's that the way you treat people is what people are having an issue with. It's you cannot just... And, and I, I go back, to this, and you guys challenge yourselves on this and think about this. When we were in grade school, when we were little, you know, there'd be retarded kids, and there'd be kid, handicapped kids, and okay, tell me I'm not supposed to use that word anymore. But there would be kids in our classes that were handicapped or had problems, and we all took care of them, you know, and everybody watched out for them, and everybody kind of took care. But, boys, we got older, and we got in junior high, and you were trying to impress the girls, and you got a little older in high school. Well, what happened? I don't know what the hell happened, but for some reason – a lot of people start picking on those kids and, and you know, trying to want to, you know, like, hey, I got to be a badass to somebody, so I'm going to go over here and start picking on these people. Well, all I'm telling you is I've learned in my life, shit rolls downhill. And I don't care who you are. I've watched many cops, and there are a lot of great cops that I'm friends with and been friends my whole life with. But I've watched others who are super nice to people that have money, super nice to people that can sue them and take the job away, and all of a sudden, the attitude changes when you get down here to the poor folk who you know you can just kick the shit out of. So I, I'm letting you know, I don't know, as you get more of this diversification on campuses and you get more low-income people going to colleges, <laughs> I don't know how in the hell you're going to change that atmosphere because I suspect 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, mostly it was just wealthy people that went to college. Our families yeah, didn't that's go true. college here. You know, and I, I don't know. When you start getting that mix in a group or that melting pot, gosh dang, I, I don't know what happens there. And to me, what sets people off all throughout my life is when people just treat them with disrespect. I don't care if they call me inward. They call, it's just if you treat someone 
like shit, it just ruffles their feathers and gets a chip on their shoulder. And so all I'm saying, if you're at the bottom of the hill, and we all agree shit rolled downhill, I mean, it, it just feels like somebody who's having a bad day is going to go kick that dog because you can, you know. I mean, you can't kick any other dog because you're, you're down the rung yourself. So you're not going to go kick the rich guy. You're not going to go kick it. So who the hell do you got left? Oh, you go over here and kick this guy. So I, I don't know. I just feel like, kind of like Joel saying, I mean, there's so much human psychology involved in what's happening in the police. I, I don't know. I can't imagine doing the job, number one, on a day-in and day-out basis. I can't imagine the biases you do develop. I can't imagine shit, you're just having a bad day, and somebody just, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's There's a lot of things there. Maybe there should be term limits to some degree on police, how long they're in the field or how much violence they have well, to let, see every day. Let, let me tell you, when, when you read the next rant, you'll see a bunch of data. And yeah. the reality is that there is a lot less bias among cops than you are led to believe. I, mean, I don't disagree with you about shit goes downhill. That's, that's for sure. But but there's, there's a couple of realities. First of all, there were only, last year, only nine black people in America were shot by cops when they were unarmed. And in a couple of cases, there was a gun in the car and the cops felt threatened. And there were more white guys, there were like 40 white guys who were unarmed that got shot by cops. And if you're a cop patrolling in one of those communities, that's, I, I just came up with these, this data today. 50% of the crime is in these poor communities. And so if you're a cop having all these calls in these communities and you get into violent confrontations, you, you have a hard time not thinking these people are not the same people that go to the country club. And so I think it takes a lot of restraint, frankly. I mean, think about it yourself. If, you know, if you're constantly going up against people who are giving you crap or fighting with you when you're arresting them or committing crimes, you're going to get a viewpoint whether you're trying to or not. And so what you're saying about shit flows downhill is true, but, it, but it's not because cops are bad guys. Um, it's sort of their experience. I'm not making excuses for them, but I'm just trying to say that's kind of the world they live in. And no, I, I, if you if you look at if you look at big cities today, the chief of police in most big cities is black, and a lot of cops are black. And um, so I don't think, and the data kind of holds this up. Th there is not that much discrimination going on and there's a lot of community policing going on but there's a lot of bad rhetoric I mean you take Obama to me Obama and Eric Holder and Biden when they were in office they were a disaster for race relations you know when Ferguson happened oh it's the cop it's the cop bad cops it wasn't the cop it was a thug tried to kill the cop and, and there were several other of those situations where Obama, you know, made it worse and Holder made it worse with their rhetoric. And I think we were headed to a better place until they got in office. And, and it's kind of ironic. There was Obama as president 
and yet he's saying, look how terrible discrimination is. And I'm not saying there isn't discrimination, because there certainly is. But I think they made it much worse with their rhetoric, and now the press is making it worse. Um, and, you know, being a New Yorker and having been in New York City in 1968, and I look at what's going on now, nothing's changed. It's the same shit. No, and I, yeah, and I hear, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I believe racism still exists, and I, I, I hear that rant loud and clear. But in this police situation, I sit there and just wonder. It, it takes a special person to work with handicapped kids. I, you know, I probably wouldn't have the patience to do it long term. It takes that special person. And I promise you right now, if I'm going into the hood every day and I'm handcuffing someone and I'm telling him to get in the car and the guy spits in my face, I'm probably losing it. So I'm letting you know, I would not be a good cop. I think it takes a special person to be a police officer who can handle the guy spitting in his face. But if you're a guy who says, I want to go be a cop because I just like being a badass and being, you know, being, getting fired up on people, well, that's the wrong reason. I mean, that is the... Yeah, no, listen. And that, that I agree happen. with you completely. Yeah. And, and the guy, the, what that cop in Minneapolis was thinking or doing to me is incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine what, what was going on in his head. Yeah. I mean, it was horrible. But, but he's not typical. And, no, and I, agree. I think I agree. that's really the point. And and you're right. I don't know how I don't know how these guys do it. I mean, I really don't. It's just, it's just you know your your life is on the line every single day. I mean it's crazy. But look, I don't think cops in general are bad people. Right. But you know the way I, the way I look at it, the way I look at it is the way Amy Wax and Heather McDonald look at it. There's a culture problem in these communities, you know, I, I, I started with nothing, nothing from nothing at all, like you. And I've got friends, one particular friend who was put into an orphanage by his father when his mother died. And then he went bounced around foster homes. He is the nicest, most successful man you could meet today. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I have another two friends, who came out of terrible home situations and poverty. And they one became chairman of an insurance company. Another one had his own business that he sold a year ago for $20 million. So, and I came from nothing. And I've done pretty damn well for myself. And so my point of, as you have, and so my point is, at the end of the day, it comes down to the person and you got to decide I'm going to make it. I'm going to be a law-abiding guy, and I'm going to be successful. You know, I can tell you, when, when I was a kid, since I'm Jewish, I, I, I remember when I was seven years old, we were leave, moving out of Brooklyn, and I was in the car with my parents, and we were driving around towns in northern New Jersey. And we went through a town called Ridgewood, which was a high-end town. Now, what did I know at seven years old? Nothing. And I said, oh, gee, this looks really nice. Why don't we look for a house here? And my mother said, because we, we're not allowed to live here. And when I graduated college, I went to Wharton, 
when I graduated Wharton, I went in the Navy, but when I thought about getting a job, I was told, well, you're Jewish. You can't go to work for a money center bank. You can't go to Merrill Lynch, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was in the Navy, one of my good friends aboard ship uh, and I were screwing around together in the gym one night, and he was from Montana. This is a guy who went to college and a good guy. And he said to me, you know, you're the first Jew I ever met, and I was taught Jews had horns. And I never knew until I met you that wasn't true. And here was a college-educated guy in Montana. So I get it. Believe me, I get it. Um, but I determined I didn't care about discrimination. I was going to do it like my friends who have done it. And and I think that's the difference. You, you've got to you got to do it for yourself. You can't do, wait for the government to do it, and you can't depend on handouts or anything else. Very true, very true. My dad taught me, he said, you've got to get your hands in the bucket of shit to find out what's at the bottom. Yep. Hard working. That's exactly right. Reliance on your Yep, so. You know, what, what, what happened, what happened to, to blacks is when they passed the welfare laws in the 60s and 70s and they paid women to have babies without the father in the house, they destroyed the black community. And now they, they say, oh, well, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. And they created this dependent class. And that's the problem. They ruined the family. And the family is critical. And there's studies on studies on studies that show that. It's why Asian kids who come out of really poor immigrant families are the top of their class. And it's why there's a lawsuit in Harvard by the Asian kids being discriminated against. They come out of terrible, terrible backgrounds. The difference is the Asians are, have cohesive nuclear families, and that's the difference. Anyway, so much for my getting on a soapbox. <laughs> uh, agreeing with you. Any, anyway, fellas. Um, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to go. Um, but I, this was a time. pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it, Joe. Well, Joe, for, sure. for me, it's it's a true honor. I, I, I feel uh, I feel that it's, it's been a long time, and I, I, I feel I know you through your writings. and. Uh, now I feel I know you uh, from your heart, and uh, I really appreciated the uh, opportunity to spend time with you, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Joel. Talk again soon, fellas. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Thanks, Joel. Joel. Talk again. All right.